Part two of part third of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jersey City Frankie. Trilby by George de Maurier. Part third, part two. One day Taffy remarked to the laird, Hang it, I'm blessed if Trilby isn't the handsomest woman I know. She looks like a grand dame masquerading as a grisette, almost like a joyful saint at times. She's lovely, by Jove. I couldn't stand her hugging me as she does you. There'd be a tragedy, say, the slaughter of little Billy. Ah, Taffy, my boy, rejoined the laird, when those long sisterly arms are round my neck, it isn't me she's hugging. And then, said Taffy, what a trump she is. Why, she's as upright and straight and honorable as a man. And what she says to one about oneself is always so pleasant to hear. That's Irish, I suppose. And what's more, it's always true. Ah, that's Scotch, said the laird, and tried to wink at little Billy, but little Billy wasn't there. Even Svengali perceived the strange metamorphosis. Ah, Trilby, he would say on a Sunday afternoon. How beautiful you are. It drives me mad. I adore you. I like you thinner. You have such beautiful bones. Why do you not answer my letters? What? You did not read them? You burned them? And yet I... Donnerwetter, I forgot. The grisettes of the quarter Latin have not learned how to read or write. They have only learned how to dance the can-can with the dirty little pig-dog monkeys they call men. Sacrament. We will teach the little pig-dog monkeys to dance something else some day, we Germans. We will make music for them to dance to. <laughs> born, born. Better than the waiter at the Café de la Rotonde, eh? And the grisettes of the Quarter Latin shall pour us out your little white wine. Fatre petite fine plain, as your pig-dog monkey of a poet says. Your rotten verflucht de Musette. Who has got such a splendid future behind him? Bah! What do you know of Monsieur Alfred de Musset? We've got a poet, too, my drubby. His name is Heinrich Heen. If he's still alive, he lives in Paris in a little street off the Champs-Élysées. He lies in bed all day long and only sees out of one eye, like the Comtesse Han Han. <laughs> he adores French gazettes. He married one. Her name is Matilda, and she has gotten suffin' fussin' like you. He would adore you, too, for your beautiful bones. He would like to count them one by one, for he is very playful, like me, Ach! And Ach, what a beautiful skeleton you will make! And very soon, too, because you do not smile on your madly-loving Svengali. You burn his letters without reading them. You shall have a nice little mahogany glass case all to yourself in the Museum of the Ecole de Medicine, and Svengali shall come in his new fur-lined coat, smoking his big cigar of the Havana, and push the dirty carabines out of the way, and look through the holes of your eyes into your stupid empty skull, and up the nostrils of your high, bony-sounding board of a nose without either a tip or a lip to it, and into the roof of your big mouth with your thirty-two big English teeth, and between your big ribs into your big chest with a big leather lungs used to be and say, Ach, what a pity she had no more music on her than a big tomcat. And then he will look all down your bones to your poor crumbling feet and say, Ach, what a fool she was not to answer Svengali's letter. And the dirty carabiners shall shut up, you sacred fool, or I'll precious soon spoil your skeleton for you. Thus the short-tempered Taffy, who had been listening. Then Svengali, scowling, would play Chopin's funeral march more divinely than ever, and where the pretty soft part comes in, he would whisper to Trilby, That is Fengali coming to look at you and your little mahogany glass case. 
and here let me say that these vicious imaginations of Svengali's, which look so tame in English print, sounded much more ghastly in French, pronounced with a Hebrew-German accent, and uttered in his hoarse, rasping, nasal, throaty rookscaw, his big yellow teeth barring themselves in a mongrel canine snarl, his heavy upper eyelids drooping over his insolent black eyes. Besides which, as he played the lovely melody, he would go through a ghoulish pantomime as though he were taking stock of the different bones in her skeleton with greedy but discriminating approval, and when he came down to the feet, he was almost droll in the intensity of his terrible realism. But Trilby did not appreciate his exquisite fooling and felt cold all over. He seemed to her a dread powerful demon, who but for Taffy, who alone could hold him in check, oppressed and weighed on her like an incubus, and she dreamed of him oftener than she dreamed of Taffy, the laird, or even little Billy. Thus, pleasantly and smoothly, and without much change or adventure, things went on till Christmas time. Little Billy seldom spoke of Trilby, or Trilby of him. Work went on every morning at the studio in the Place saint Antoine de Arts, and pictures were begun and finished, little pictures that didn't take long to paint the laird's Spanish bullfighting scenes, in which the bull never appeared, and which he sent to his native Dundee and sold there. Taffy's tragic little dramas of life in the slums of Paris, starvings, drownings, suicides by charcoal and poison, which he sent everywhere, but did not sell. Little Billy was painting all this time at Carell's studio, his private one, and seemed preoccupied and happy when they all met at mealtime, and less talkative even than usual. He had always been the least talkative of the three, more prone to listen and no doubt to think the more. In the afternoon people came and went as usual, and boxed and fenced and did gymnastic feats, and felt Taffy's biceps, which by this time equaled Mr. Sandow's. Some of these people were very pleasant and remarkable, and have become famous since then in England, France, America, or have died, or married, and come to grief or glory in other ways. It is the ballad of the Bouillabaisse all over again. It might be worth while my trying to sketch some of the more noteworthy, now that my story is slowing for a while, like a French train when the engine driver sees a long curved tunnel in front of him, as I do, and no light at the other end. My humble attempts at characterization might be useful as memoirs de pour servir to future biographers. Besides, there are other reasons, as the reader will soon discover. There was Durain, for instance, Trilby's especial French adorer, Poor Le Bon Motif as son of the people, a splendid sculptor, a very fine character in every way, so perfect indeed that there is less to say about him than any of the others. Modest, earnest, simple, frugal, chaste, and of untiring industry, living for his art, and perhaps also a little for Trilby, whom he would have been only too glad to marry. He was Pygmalion, she was his Galatea, a Galatea whose marble heart would never beat for him. Durain's house is now the finest in the Parc Monceau. His wife and daughters are the best-dressed women in Paris, and he one of the happiest of men. But he will never quite forget poor Galatea, the belle aux petits alpters aux dux talons de rose. Then there was Vincent, a Yankee medical student who could both work and play. He is now one of the greatest oculists in the world, and Europeans cross the Atlantic to consult him. He can still play, and when he crosses the Atlantic himself for that purpose, he has to travel incognito like a royalty, lest his play should be marred by work. And his daughters are so beautiful and accomplished that British dukes have sighed after them in vain. 
indeed these fair young ladies spend their autumn holiday in refusing the british aristocracy we are told so in the society papers and i can quite believe it love is not always blind and if he is vincent is the man to cure him in those days he prescribed for us all round and punched and stethoscoped us and looked at our tongues for love and told us what to eat drink and avoid and even where to go for it for instance late one night little billy woke up in a cold sweat and thought himself a dying man he had felt seedy all day and taken no food so he dressed and dragged himself to vincent's hotel and woke him up and said oh vincent vincent i'm a dying man and all but fainted in his bed vincent felt him all over with the greatest care and asked him many questions then looking at his watch he delivered himself thus <sighs> three thirty rather late but still look here little billy do you know the how on the other side of the water where they sell vegetables oh yes yes what vegetables shall i listen on the north side are two restaurants bordiere and barrette they remain open all night now go straight off to one of those tuck shops and tuck in as big a supper as you possibly can some people prefer barrette i prefer bordiere myself perhaps you'd better try bordiere first and barrette after at all events lose no time so off you go thus he saved little billy from an early grave then there was the greek a boy of only sixteen but six feet high and looking ten years older than he was and able to smoke even stronger tobacco than taffy himself and color pipes divinely he was a great favorite in the plus saint antoine for his bonhomie his niceness his warm geniality he was the capitalist of the select circle and nobly lavish of his capital he went by the name of Pauluflois bois pelopologos petri lepetro lycococonos for so he was christianed by the laird because his real name was thought much too long and much too lovely for the quarter latin and reminded one too much of the isles of greece where burning sappho loved and sang what was he learning in the latin quarter french he spoke french like a native nobody knows but when his paris friends transferred their bohemia to london where were they ever made happier and more at home than in his lordly parental abode or fed with nicer things that abode is now his and lordlier than ever as becomes the dwelling of a millionaire and city magnate and its gray-bearded owner is as genial and as jolly and as hospitable as in the old paris days but he no longer colors pipes then there was carnegie fresh from balliol redolent of the varsity he introduced himself then for the diplomatic service and came to paris to learn french as it is spoke and spent most of his time with his fashionable english friends on the right side of the river and the rest with taffy the laird and little billy on the left he is now only a rural dean and speaks the worst french i know and speaks it wherever and whenever he can it serves him right i think he was fond of lords and knew some at least he gave one that impression and often talked of them and dressed so beautifully that even little billy was abashed in his presence only taffy in his threadbare out-at-elbows shooting jacket and cricket cap and the laird in his tattered straw hat and taffy's old overcoat down to his heels dared to walk arm in arm with him nay insisted on doing so as they listened to the band in the luxembourg gardens and his whiskers were even longer and thicker and more golden than taffy's own but the mere sight of a boxing glove made him sick then there was the yellow-haired antony a swiss the idle apprentice le roi des trans as we called him to whom everything was forgiven as to francois villelon a castesses gentilesis surely for all his reprehensible pranks the gentlest and most lovable creature that ever lived in bohemia or out of it always in debt like svengali 
for he had no more notion of the value of money than a hummingbird, and gave away in reckless generosity to his friends what in strictness belonged to his endless creditors like Svengali. Humorous, witty, and a most exquisite and original artist, and also somewhat eccentric in his attire, though scrupulously clean, so that people would stare at him as he walked along, a thing that always gave him dire offense. But unlike Svengali, full of delicacy, refinement, and distinction of mind and manner, void of any self-conceit, and in spite of the irregularities of his life, the very soul of truth and honor, as gentle as he was chivalrous and brave, the warmest, staunchest, sincerest, most unselfish friend in the world, and, as long as his purse was full, the best and drollest boon companion in the world. But that was not forever. When the money was gone, then would Antony hie him to some beggarly attic in some lost Parisian slum, and write his own epithet in lovely French or German verse, or even English, for he was an astounding linguist, and telling himself that he was forsaken by family, friends, and mistresses alike, look out of his casement over the Paris chimney-pots for the last time, and listen once more to the harmonies of nature, as he called it, and aspire towards the infinite, and bewail the, the cruel deceptions of his life, and finally lay himself down to the sheer starvation. And as he lay and waited for his release that was so long in coming, he would beguile the weary hours by mumbling a crust watered with his own salt tears, and decorating his epitaph with fanciful designs of the most exquisite humor, pathos, and beauty. These early illustrated epitaphs of the young Anthony, of which there still exist a goodly number, are now priceless, as all collectors know all over the world. Fainter and fainter would he grow, and finally, on the third day or thereabouts, a remittance would reach him from some long-suffering sister or aunt in far Lausanne, or else the fickle mistress or faithless friend, who had been looking for him all over Paris, would discover his hiding-place. The beautiful epitaph would be walked off in triumph to Le Père Marcasse in the Rue de Guette, and sold for twenty, fifty, a hundred francs, and then vogue le galère, and back again to Bohemia, dear Bohemia and all its joys, as long as the money lasted, e poi de capo. And now that his name is a household word in two hemispheres, and he himself an honor and a glory to the land he has adopted as his own, he loves to remember all this, and look back from the lofty pinnacle on which he sits perched up aloft to the impecunious days of his idle apprenticeship, the bon temps oil von etitzil meraroc. And with all that quixotic dignity of his, so famous is he as a wit, that when he jokes, and he is always joking, people laugh first, and then ask what he was joking about, and you can make your own mild funiments raise a roar by merely prefacing them as, Antony once said. The present scribe has often done so, and if by a happy fluke you should some day hit upon a really good thing of your own, good enough to be quoted, be sure it will come back to you after many days prefaced as, Antony once said, and these jokes are so good-natured that you almost resent their being made at anybody's expense but your own, never from Antony. The aimless jest that striking has caused pain, the idle word that he'd wished back again. Indeed, in spite of his success, I don't suppose he ever made an enemy in his life. And here let me add, lest there be any doubt as to his identity, that he is now tall and stout and strikingly handsome, though rather bald and such an aristocrat in bearing, aspect, and manner, that you would take him for a blue-blooded descendant of the Crusaders, instead of the son of a respectable burgher in Lucene. Then there was Lorimer, 
the industrious apprentice who was now also well pinnacled on high himself a pillar of the royal academy probably if he lives long enough its future president the duly knighted and baroneted lord mayor of all the plastic arts except one or two perhaps here and there that are not altogether without some importance maybe this not be for many many years lorimer himself would be the first to say so tall thin red-haired and well-favored he was a most eager earnest and painstaking young enthusiast of precocious culture who read improving books and did not share in the amusements of the quarter latin but spent his evenings at home with handel michelangelo and dante on the respectable side of the river also he went into good society sometimes with dress coat on and a white tie and his hair parted in the middle but in spite of these blemishes on his otherwise exemplary record as an art student he was the most delightful companion, the most affectionate, helpful, and sympathetic of friends. May he live long and prosper. Enthusiast as he was, he could only worship one god at a time. It was either Michelangelo, Phidias, Paul Veronese, Tintoret, Raphael, or Titian. Never a modern. Moderns didn't exist. And so thoroughgoing was he in his worship, and so persistent in voicing it, that he made those immortals quite unpopular in the place de saint Antoine d'Arts. We grew to dread their very names. Each of them would last him a couple of months or so, and then he would give us a month's holiday, and then take up another. Antony did not think much of Lorimer in those days, nor Lorimer of him, for all they were such good friends, and neither of them thought much of little Billy, whose pinnacle of pure, unadulterated fame, is now the highest of all, the highest probably that can be for a mere painter of pictures. And what is so nice about Lorimer, now that he is a greybeard, an academician, an accomplished man of the world and society, is that he admires Antony's genius more than he can say, and reads Mr. Rudyard Kipling's delightful stories as well as Dante's Inferno, and can listen with delight to the lovely songs of Signor Tosti, who has not precisely founded himself on Handel, can even scream with laughter at a comic song, even a nigger melody, so at least that it be but sung in well-bred and distinguished company, for Lorimer is no bohemian. Shoe-fly, don't you bother me, for I belong to the company G. Both these famous men are happily and most beautifully married, grandfathers for all I know, and move in the very best society. Lorimer always, I'm told, Antony now and then, Le Hot, as it used to be called in French Bohemia, meaning dukes and lords and even royalties, I suppose, and those who love them, and whom they love. That is the best society, isn't it? At all events, we are assured it used to be. But that must have been before the present scribe, a meek and somewhat innocent outsider, had been privileged to see it with his own little eye. And when they happened to meet there, Antony and Lorimer, I mean, I don't expect they rush very wildly into each other's arms, or talk very fluently about old times, nor do I suppose their wives are very intimate. None of our wives are, not even Taffy's and the Laird's. O oh, Orestes, O oh, Pylades, O oh, ye impecunious, unpinnacled young inseparables of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, or even twenty-five, who share each other's thoughts and purses, and wear each other's clothes, and swear each other's oaths, and smoke each other's pipes, and respect each other's lights of love, and keep each other's secrets, and tell each other's jokes, and pawn each other's watches, and merry make together on the proceeds, and sit all night by each other's bedsides in sickness, and comfort each other in sorrow and disappointment with silent manly sympathy, wait till you get to forty year. Wait even till each or either of you gets himself a little pinnacle of his own, be it ever so humble. 
nay wait till either or each of you gets himself a wife history goes on repeating itself and so do novels and this is a platitude and there's nothing new under the sun nay de sisi as the idiomatic laird would say in the language he adores may de sisi a ni isi ni la then there was dodor the handsome young dragon de la garde a full private if you please with a beardless face and damask rosy cheeks and a small waist and narrow feet like a lady's and who strange to say spoke english just like an englishman and his friend gontran elise uzus a corporal in the zouaves both of these worthies had met taffy in the crimea and frequented the studio in the quarter latin where they adored and were adored by the grisettes and models especially trilby both of them were distinguished for being the worst subjects, le plus mauvais garnements, of their respective regiments, yet both were special favorites not only with their fellow rankers but with those in command, from their colonels downward. Both were in the habit of being promoted to the rank of corporal or brigadier and degraded to the rank of private next day for general misconduct, the result of a too exuberant delight in their promotion. Neither of them knew fear, envy, malice, temper, or low spirits ever said or did an ill-natured thing ever even thought one ever had an enemy but himself both had the best or the worst manners going according to their company whose manners they reflected they were true chameleons both were always ready to share their last ten sous piece not that they ever seemed to have one with each other or anybody else or anybody else's last ten sous piece with you to offer you a friend's cigar to invite you to dine with any friend they had to fight with you or for you at a moment's notice and they made up for all the, ex the anxiety tribulation and sorrow they caused at home by the endless fun and amusement they gave to all outside it was a pretty dance they led but our three friends of the place saint antoine who hadn't got to pay the pipers loved them both especially dodor End of part two, part third, recording by Jersey City Frankie.